Welcome to the IBTA podcast. Discussions on policy, practice and research around professional learning. IBTA conversations. Hello, welcome everyone to the IBTA podcast. My name is Susanna Oberalter. I am the conference committee chair and I am delighted to welcome Professor Matt O'Leary with us today. He's going to talk about his book, Classroom Observation, a guide to the effective observation of teaching and learning. I'm going to hand over to Professor O'Leary to just introduce himself and tell you a little bit more about his work. That's great. Thanks very much for the invitation, Lazama. Very happy to be able to talk about this with with colleagues. I am a Professor of Education and Director of our Education Research Centre in C-Space at Birmingham City University. And I have been here at BCU uh, since 2015. Uh, before that, I spent 10 very, very happy years at University of Wolverhampton, where Lazana currently works. But throughout that time, I've been working in the field of teacher education, teacher development and professional learning. So it's a great privilege, really, to be able to share with you some of my work and particularly the second edition of my book, Classroom Observation. It's a book which, as the title suggests, it focuses on the phenomenon of, of classroom observation its role in the preparation, assessment and and professional learning of of teachers, lecturers and educators at all levels and across different sectors and educational organisations. This is something which, again, regardless of whatever sector in education you work, you will come into contact with observation. It's something which has an impact really on teachers and educators' lives from the very moment that they begin their careers, whether it be as part of an initial teacher education course, right up to the end uh, of their teaching careers, when we know that that observation is used as an ongoing mechanism to monitor, for example, teaching performance, uh, as well as playing a very, very important role in in feeding into people's ongoing professional learning, professional development. Thank you for sharing that. And we obviously touched base a little bit about the book just before we started this conversation, but just to give colleagues a flavour of what inspired the book, do you want to tell us just a little bit more about your research and also then what led to this book being written? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Lozana. It, it's a journey that, that goes back quite a, lot, quite a long way, actually. I can trace it back to just pre-millennium, towards the end of the, the 1990s. I happened to be doing an MA in uh, English language teaching and applied linguistics at King's College London. I was living in London at the time and I was, um, I was the head of uh, English as a foreign language department in a, in a further education college. And one of the things that I had to do in my role was that as the head of a department I had to go and observe people across different subject areas on an ongoing basis. And I found myself in an English literature class. This, it was an evening class this, this one day, uh, observing an incredibly experienced just inspiring English literature teacher and here I was sat there watching this with this very formulaic template that I had to complete with an accompanying set of assessment criteria and it was a really it was a really significant kind of turning point in my life in my career because I looked at this form I looked at this this particular teacher and the students in the class I thought what on earth am I doing here why am I why am I going through this exercise of filling out these boxes in in a in what to me was a, a really meaningless exercise about judging the capabilities, the expertise, the competence of this highly experienced uh, professional? 
And yet I have the authority and the, the responsibility to categorize his performance by actually giving him a number. I mean, in those days, we were still using a graded system of observation. And it, it kind of changed me completely because I went home, you know, feeling very, very kind of very disgruntled, very worked up. And I said to him when I left the classroom, I said, listen, I'm not going to, there's nothing I can tell you. You know, as far as I'm concerned, this was great, you know, and, and I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to put down stuff for the sake of, you know, including all. But I went home and I felt very uneasy. And I, I remember very clearly, I didn't sleep that night. I went in to see my line manager the next day and said, I don't want to perform this role anymore. And so we had quite a heated discussion because she said it was an important role as being a head of department, etc. And I said, well, OK, well, let's think about doing this differently. And that was the beginning of unbeknownst to me at the time, what has become really a, an area of work which has sustained me for over two decades. It led to me doing my dissertation when I was doing my MA on a particular model of observation, which I experimented with and which I've interestingly returned to quite recently called unseen observation. And as I said, it was, <laughs> it was something that I'd never anticipated, but it triggered a career involvement almost with, with observation from the perspective of actually getting involved in developing new approaches to observation, doing training for that, researching it, writing about it. And here I am 20 odd years later, still actively involved in the field. Really fascinating story to share. And I'm really dying to ask, what is, or could you tell us a bit more about unseen observation and how that works? to just give people a sense of what that means. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mentioned that it's a, a model of observation that I've returned to quite recently. And by that, I'm referring to the life that we've all been having to lead over the last 18 months as a result of the pandemic. I think it was around uh, April 2020 when I was contacted by a number of different universities, uh, particularly the teacher um, training, teacher education departments, who for understandable reasons, found themselves in a position not being able to go out and visit, uh, do, do school visits, uh, do college visits to observe their trainee teachers, and yet still had the obligation to try and comply with the requirements of their regulators and ensuring that their trainee teachers had X amount of observation throughout the year. One of the alternatives that they were interested in exploring with me was this model of unseen observation, which, as the name suggests, it's almost like a contradiction in terms because there isn't an observation that takes place by a third party. So that's the big kind of conceptual difference, if you like. The observation in itself is, is actually a self-observation. And it has its kind of influence and origins from the field of kind of counselling and therapy. And that is that those interactions between, if you like, the counsellor and the patient are totally dependent upon the patient recounting the events that they've experienced. And that's as far as I'm going to go with that analogy between counselling and, and patient and move it back to the kind of educational context here. So in the context of a classroom, what that means is that the individual teacher who would normally be observed by a third party, they're not observed, but they go through a similar cycle that you would expect as part of an observation process. But the big difference being is that the observation is replaced with them recounting events that they've self-reflected on as a result of undertaking this particular model. And I think there are some really key differences as well as the fact that there isn't an observation that takes place. I think the first difference that I would flag up is that it's quite a radical shift 
in the locus of control that we're used to encountering with models of observation. And what I mean by that is the locus of control usually rests in the hands of the observer. And that is reinforced in a number of ways from the perspective of they're the one who enters a classroom situation with a form to complete with a set of assessment criteria. They're making judgments about what they see. And those judgments usually then feed into some kind of final evaluation and outcome for that person being observed. With unseen observation, it, it totally, it turns away from that particular assessment-based model of observation completely. And what it does is it approaches observation as a process through exploratory, investigative lens. So in, in reality, what that means in the different stages of the cycle is that a lot of the emphasis is shifted onto the pre-observation discussion. Because one of the things which the cycle of unseen observation emphasizes is the importance of sharing the thinking and decision making about planning for a lesson. And I know that for those of us that are involved with or have been involved with teacher training, teacher education courses, that, that may be familiar territory that you talk to trainee teachers about their planning, why they included that particular task, what's the rationale for why they're grouping the students in pairs or groups, etc. So trying to unpick the thinking behind the planning and preparation that goes into the, the pre-delivery stage. And that's a really important part of the unseen observation cycle. But equally, it's about the, and this is where there's a shift in, in discourse. We don't talk about the observer because obviously they're not observing. So typically, we'll talk about them as being a cope or a sort of a supportive peer depending upon the relationship and the hierarchies involved within any given context. And so the role of the, what would traditionally be the observer is one of a, I'm trying to think the, uh, the, the term that, um, I think it's Whitmore, and that's from a coaching context, the, the term that, that they use is a detached awareness raiser. It's a great term because what they kind of mean by that is the role of the non-observer, if you like, is to provoke and to dig deep, to dig more deeply into what's going on inside the head of the teacher when it comes to thinking about their planning and preparation for a class. And that, that kind of discussion is then returned to after the, the class has been taught, because the, there is a, a mutual frame of reference that the two share, despite the fact that the class hasn't been observed. Yeah. It, it reminds me of, um, I've just recently looked at a book by Connor and Pakora on coaching and mentoring, and they talk about the learning relationship. And it sounds to me like you're describing a learning relationship where there's that dialogue in terms of choices and decision making, and also deepening your reflection to become a reflective and reflexive practitioner all the way through. So that's that long, lifelong journey of reflection as you go along and continuing to refine your practice in a safe space. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things which, and I, I, I talk about this particularly in, in, the, in the third part of my book, is that the need to shift our, our, our conceptual lens, our mindset when it comes to the way in which we engage with observation. And I suppose the key takeaway point that I make there is that we need to step away from using it as a tool of assessment. Actually, it's, it's prolonged use as a tool of assessment. The over-reliance that we formed on it as a tool of assessment is the biggest barrier to us engaging with observation 
as a valuable tool for helping us to understand that messy and complex relationship between teaching and learning. And when it comes to professional development or, or the professional learning of teachers, that for me is, is really the most exciting and the most valuable way in which observation can be used. And by putting that at the forefront of the way in which we interact with observation, I think is a, is a massive leap forward for, for, for educational institutions. Absolutely, I agree. And it, it reminds me of Jim Knight's work as well, that, that he advocates that we should have better conversations with each other about our practice and really think carefully about the choices we make to help the learners we work with, which is really exciting. Now, I just want to come back to that point you made that we no longer grade lessons. It's interesting that some epicologists still in London do grade lessons and then make use of advanced skills practitioners to then coach people that they use the term I suppose interchangeably to coach colleagues then to reach the right level so that still happens which I think is really interesting in, in a landscape where we're hoping that we've moved away from that and with that in mind I was just wondering what you're hoping for the book to achieve then in this broad landscape of education and then the important role observation plays in that landscape. That's a great question that's a really really good question Nathana, because I suppose what's at the heart of that really is whether or not what I set out to achieve with the writing of the book has been realised. And, and that's ultimately, like any book, that's dependent upon the way in which it's received and how the readers engage with that and as to whether or not you've been successful. So for me, I think one of the biggest things that I, I wanted to achieve with the writing of this book is, well, I guess there are two things that, that kind of jump out at me. The first thing was, it was adopting a as kind of forensic and comprehensive approach as possible to to understand this phenomenon of observation, the role that it plays in the lives of, of teachers, how it impacts on them, both in terms of their practice, in terms of their professional identities, etc. But the second thing, and this in some ways is very much the pragmatic side of things here, and that's about making people aware of the the rich opportunities and alternatives that there are to the more kind of traditional performance management driven uses of observation which in, in my mind they've not only outlived their purpose but they've become quite significant barriers to people continuing to to make effective use of observation and I think one of the things which I hope I've done in the book is that I show people what those alternatives are or can be, bearing in mind limited as to how many different models and approaches you can include in any given book, um, but that I also provide people with the tools in which they can go about working with these alternatives, that there is a, a relationship between the theoretical and the practical that I hope that I've managed to achieve that balance in developing awareness and kind of raising people's insights into what the thinking is behind particular approaches and why it's important. Because for me, I think all of my work, whether it's an observation in, or in other fields of educational research, is always underpinned by principles and values. And, and that goes together with this particular book and, and the work that I'm talking about in relation to exploring innovative, new, alternative approaches to observation. They're all underpinned by particular principles and values. And at the heart of that are things like you know, trust, collaboration, collegial cooperation, 
you know, professional commitment to, to want to better your, your own practice as well as the experience of your students, because ultimately, I think regardless of what particular model of observation you adopt and what the underpinning purposes are, and there are differing camps and very differing purposes and agendas, I would like to think that there is a meeting point in the middle, and that is that a commitment to wanting to provide the best learning experience possible for our students. And in order to do that, my kind of mantra is that in order to improve the student learning experience, you need to improve the teacher learning experience. And I hope that some of the, the models and ideas that I include in the book make a contribution to that. If they do, well, that makes me very happy. Thanks, Matt. I was going to, all, all the things I was thinking you were saying, and as you know, I've really enjoyed reading your book. And one of the things I would like to add is also there's a deep commitment to help others to grow and develop, to help obviously the learners. But there's also that professional respect and kindness towards colleagues that, that really resonates with me in terms of what the book advocates. And I think that's really important to, to also look after people. And, and I think often that gets lost with the performative drive in the current situation. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Lizana. I think, I think it's a really important issue at any point in time, but even more so what people have had to contend with over, over the last two years and how that has accentuated the pressures and the stress that people within education are under. I, I always work from the, the starting point that if you're working with, with teachers who are qualified professionals, they've gone through a, a period whereby they've had to prove their worth. And the fact that they have undertaken a commitment like to do a teacher training qualification, to upskill themselves, etc., to me, it is a really indicative representation of their commitment and their conscientiousness. And that continues for me, and that you have to realise that in order to make the most of those professional relationships, those basic principles of respect, trust and honesty have to underpin that. And there may be rare exceptions on some occasions when people fall outside of those core principles, and, and we know that there are mechanisms for dealing with that. But I think that if we're going to be talking about an area of practice which is everywhere, it's kind of ubiquitous, you know, it, it penetrates teachers' lives throughout, then it's best to start with an approach whereby we have those kind of common human values in place that we can kind of collaborate with a view to actually improving each other, because that's another important um, aspect for me about the way in which um, we've both undervalued and underused observation in traditional assessment-based models, the reciprocal benefit to everybody involved. It's not this idea of somebody being an expert. I think I have I find very troubling, you know, because we're, you know, it, it's troubling both for people being observed and the people doing the observing. Because from an observer's perspective, there's an expectation that they have the answers to everything. We don't. We know teaching is an incredibly complex activity. You know, I've been doing it. I was saying to somebody last night, I've been doing it for getting close to thirty years now, and there's still so much I'm learning about it all the time. You know, it's never, ever going to be a, a craft that you can say, yes, I've cracked that. I've got all the answers. <laughs> and so I've got as much to learn as somebody coming into the profession as, as, as a newly qualified teacher has. And I think there's another common ground for us that is a kind of humbling, to use, I think it's Shane, Edgar Shane's term, um, adopting a lens of humble inquiry. Yes. It's an important and sobering thought for us when it comes to engaging with observation. 
Absolutely. It's a humbling experience, isn't it? And sometimes you learn that the most from those who are new to the profession. I always used to love working with teacher trainees for that very reason, because they see things with a different lens. And that's the exciting part. Now, we've reached the end of our conversation. And I just wanted to ask if there's anything pressing that you would like to add to the podcast, or do you feel we've covered most of it? Uh, no, I think we've we've covered quite a uh, quite a lot of ground in in a, in a relatively short space of time. Lazana, you've been a joy to uh, talk to, as always. You have a very, I think you've got a very nice kind of uh, welcoming style of, of interviewing that makes people feel very very comfortable. So I'm, I'm, I thank you for that. It's very kind to say thank you, Matt. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time because I know you're very busy and we are really looking forward to welcoming you to the IPTA conference as well because I know you'll be speaking there as well with various events lined up. So really looking forward to that as well. Yeah, likewise. I, mean, I know we're very excited. There's a number of us doing kind of uh, collaborative presentations with some colleagues from Vietnam on a project that we've been working with and I spoke to them in fact yesterday and they're, they're all very excited about the conference so can't wait it's only a week to go now <laughs> exactly <laughs> wonderful well thank you so much and I really appreciate it oh, you're more than welcome thank you Lazana. thanks for listening to the IPTA podcast visit www.ipda.org.uk for our latest updates